Friends, welcome to Radio Free Cannabis, coming to you from high in the Oakland Hills, overlooking the San Francisco Bay, epicenter and birthplace of the global cannabis freedom movement. Remember, no matter where you are, no matter what country you're in, no matter your race, your nationality, your religion, or the position that you occupy in society, if you love cannabis, if you have a special relationship with this plant, then you are not alone. There are hundreds of millions of us all around the world. Collectively, we are larger than all but the very largest nations. And we know, we understand that none of us will be fully and securely free until all of us are fully and securely free. So if you are still living under the darkness of prohibition, Stay strong. Change is coming. Lately, I've been uh, talking a lot and spending a lot of my time thinking about the intersection of racial justice and cannabis. And um, you can see that work on my social channels on the lastprisonerproject.org website. And I want to talk about race and cannabis today. Uh, but from a slightly different kind of perspective. I wanna talk about the critical role that black people have played in the dispersal of cannabis and knowledge about cannabis all around the world. Um, some of this history is just coming to light now. Uh, there's a book that I've been reading that's called The African Roots of Marijuana by Chris Duval, who's a professor at the uh, University of, of uh, New Mexico. And Duval reinterprets cannabis history through an anti-racist and anti-colonial perspective. And he says, he believes, and I think lays out a persuasive case that the while cannabis came to North America and, and the Americas and other parts of the world through many, many different hands, a, a very many different groups, that the largest number of hands, that the single group that was most responsible for this dispersal were Africans and the descendants of Africans uh, who somehow managed to bring cannabis seeds with them uh, uh, under conditions of bondage and, and then find new homes for cannabis all around the African diaspora. How they managed to do this is, a, is an incredible tale of its own. And one day I hope to persuade Professor Duval to come on the show so that we can more deeply explore it. But other parts of the role that black people have played in dispersal of cannabis and the creation of cannabis culture have been known for a long time. The role of cannabis and black people in the creation of jazz, in the creation of reggae, in the creation of hip hop, and then how these various different genres have helped cannabis uh, all around the world. And, and that's what we're gonna be exploring today with our guests who I am really excited to, to introduce you to. Uh, Niambe McIntosh is the daughter of Peter Tosh. She is a cannabis activist uh, in her own right, she is the director of the Peter Tosh Foundation and of the Peter Tosh brand. 
Uh, and uh, towards the end of the show, we're going to ask Nyambe to share with us uh, how uh, the disparate enforcement of cannabis prohibition in the United States has tragically and directly impacted the Tosh family. My other guest is Fab Five Freddy. Fab Five Freddy came to global attention as the VJ, as the host of Yo! MTV Raps, where he played a pioneering role in introducing this new art form all around the world. He is a visual artist and a filmmaker. He lives in Harlem and his most, uh, or one of his more recent projects uh, is Grass is Greener, which is a really remarkable documentary about the history of cannabis and, and how that history intersects with, uh, with music, various different musical uh, genres. It's available on Netflix. And if you have not watched it yet and you're watching this show, then you need to remedy uh, that lack and make sure that you go and watch this film. So to both of you, uh, welcome to Radio Free Cannabis. Hi, Steve. Thanks for being here. Nice to meet Alambe. Niambe, I'm sorry. Niambe, yes. Uh, thank you so much. A pleasure to be here with you both. Great. So Niambe, it's, um, you know, we have this unique opportunity with you to really uh, get a firsthand glimpse, uh, understanding of one of the people who was, you know, most uh, noted and played the most critical role in spreading cannabis culture uh, around the world, really a global ambassador, uh, your father, cannabis legend, uh, prophet, songwriter, <laughs> Peter Tosh. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about what you were taught in your family, what you learned about the role that cannabis played in, in reggae and Rastafari? Yeah, you know, um, when it's a part of your culture, it's a lot of the lessons aren't necessarily taught directly. They're kind of indirectly taught. You know, it's it's just around. You know, all of that's most of my family consumes consumes cannabis, and it wasn't something that we were um, ever ashamed of, ever embarrassed of. And um, you know, my I, I it wasn't until I became older where where I started to understand it a little bit more um, and, and learn about the medicinal benefits and its, it, and its history and connection to, to Rastafari and, and how um, you know, my father was this fearless um, ambassador of the plant. Uh, and, you know, I grew up kind of just seeing the, the interviews and the pictures of him always with a spliff in his mouth, no matter what, um, stadium or theater or concert, no matter what country he was in. Um, and you would think that it was easy for him to do those things. But when I meet people that actually like traveled with him and toured with him, the amount of experiences that he's had, you know, at airports at, um, particularly even in Jamaica, um, it was, it wasn't something that was easy for him to do, but he, believed he had a staunch belief in, in the plant and he knew that um, any, any opposition to his belief was a violation of his human rights. Um, and he would say it back then. So, um, you know, a lot of what I've learned really has come as I've gotten older and now look back um, at, you know, our legacy and, and the belief system around the plant. 
Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, your father had this this image of cannabis warrior. You know, I remember him like with the bandoliers and 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 just very militant, right? Yes. But but he was really a, a very multi-dimensional human being, wasn't he? Oh yeah, oh yeah. He he um, was firm in his beliefs and didn't hold his tongue. And there's even this the One Love Peace concert where that happened in Jamaica in the 70s. And he, in front of the, the Jamaican government, you know, laid out all of the ways in which um, they were negatively impacting the, the economy and, and oppressing people, even through the education system. So he had this, this um, public um, persona as an, you know, he was an activist and he was firm and he did not hold his tongue, but uh, his Personally, he was the most lovable and likable man. And my mom said that, you know, no, whenever you were with him, you would, you know, he'd have you just laughing the whole day because he was, you know, he was a comedian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So very multifaceted, but also well-educated as well. He, um, he made a point to, to learn about the medicinal benefits of cannabis. And I remember watching an interview recently where he um, use cannabinoid system, you know, back in the, in the seventies. And I'm just like, what the hell? <laughs> you know, <laughs> I knew you were smart, but I, you know, I, I didn't know that you understood the, you know, the medicinal benefits and, and the science behind the plant to that depth. And so he was definitely a man before his time. Well, we were uh, lucky indeed to, to have him. Uh, and thanks for sharing some of your, some of your memories. It's, it's wonderful to hear about. Um, Fred, uh, let's think about jazz for a minute. We know that one of the ways that cannabis came to North America was through the hands of Afro-Caribbean sailors, uh, uh, folks from Trinidad, folks from Jamaica, who were sailing into the port of New Orleans, you know, around 1900, a little before, a little after, right yeah. around the same time that jazz was being born. So were those two things connected? Yeah, it seems like when you do the his when you do the history, they were very connected. And even though uh, the racial oppression, slavery, all those things were in effect as they were in most of the the states, uh, colonies, etc. At that time during this history, there was a little bit of uh, openness, looseness, the ability to let people mix a little. Um, and one of the places where that happened in New Orleans was a place known as Congo Square, where on the weekends, um, black people could come out and play the drums and sell somewhere. It was like a market festival kind of jam session, if you will, that people gathered and mixed. And that openness allowed the music to develop and create, while those sailors that would come into that major port in that area brought these, these, these special goodies that people really developed a liking to that went along with the development of this music. And some of the first reports against cannabis, um, primarily because people of color were smoking it and it was bringing people together. Some of the first article um, reports and articles written were based on what was happening in New Orleans. So that's when you see, okay, because black people, and of course, as you know, in places that bordered Mexico, they were attacking the Mexican people for using cannabis. But as the migration began to the North, after Jim Crow went into effect, 
black folks were trying to get away from that continued oppression that was pretty much the same as slavery. So up to Harlem, Chicago, they came, the music continued to develop and the plant came along with them. So how did those early jazz musicians relate to cannabis? What role did it play in their creative lives? Well, I think it was, you know, um, in, in my film, talking to people that have given, put a lot of deep thought into it, the kind of state that kind of relaxed, blissful vibe that cannabis sometimes puts you in, just in terms of your psycho space and your just physical being, allowed people say the ability, the, the improvisational aspects of jazz, you are more easily able to move in and around the beats and the rhythms. Um, doing something that wasn't as regimented as the European musics, which the musicians said, okay, I hear what you're saying, playing, I see those instruments, let me take them and do something different. And so that apparently worked to, um, to help that improvisational pro uh, process which musicians have talked about. And I think also when you think of what we know now of the specific medical benefits, people being treated for all types of things with cannabis, particularly PTSD, which for black folks now with what's going on all around us and you see this terror, which we've had to deal with for way too long and understanding that there's people that have been in the wars that are being treated with cannabis for PTSD as opposed to the opioids, which they're you know, given, a much better result. So that tells me that back in those times when you move wrong, you step wrong, you could be confronted by the authorities and could end up lynched hanging from a tree, that cannabis probably, the medicinal aspects were probably working in ways that people knew, but now we know more specifically because of the research going on. So I think that was a very much a part. Plus if you're drunk on alcohol, you're not gonna be able to play your instrument with the kind of physical, mobility that you really need. And so it all makes perfect sense when you, and then Louis Armstrong, the father, if you will, the great kind of architect of jazz was the most prolific cannabis uh, user, smoker, advocate throughout. And so we now know more of these things specifically. So it's really been exciting and to learn more about this um, and feeling and knowing how it actually works. It, it is so fascinating, right, that some of the most important pillars of American culture came out of the crucible of racial oppression and cannabis. Um, Mez Mesro, who was a white jazz musician, yes. uh, he actually sold weed to Louis Armstrong and was a huge cannabis and jazz aficionado, yes, said was. that jazz was the sound that slavery made when, or excuse me, I got that wrong. Jazz is the sound that the blues made when slavery encountered freedom. I tell you, Mez Mesero was a legend. So, so I just wanna say, so how this all began for me, which I kind of illustrate in the film, as a young kid, I went to a, was in a record store, let me look through some jazz records. You know, my dad played jazz all the time. And there's this album called Reefer Songs. So as a kid, I bought this album and I couldn't believe like, wait a minute, Duke Ellington, all these jazz greats, Cab Calloway made songs about cannabis. So I come home, my dad and all his friends were gathered. I was like, yo, what's going on? And they all had a big laugh. 
knew all these songs and then started telling me stories because I'm trying to decipher the one record in particular. There's one song which goes, dreamed about a reefer five feet long, the mighty mez, but not too strong. You'll be high, but not for long, you know. So I was like, whatever. And my dad and them laughed and they as kids had chipped in, went up to Harlem and brought loose jo a lo loose joint from Mez. So they remembered, heard the stories, purchased the plant, and got really, you know, had the best experience. And so that explained, and then it, when the idea for the film Grass is Greener hit me, I was like, wait a minute, these jazz guys were making these records about the plant, which were, you know, there, was, there wasn't on the radio then, but it was in jukeboxes and all the clubs, so everybody knew, hey, this is what, we, what we're into. And that, I realized, followed contemporary music through every genre. And then with what I did with hip hop when I ran your MTV Raps was introduce people like Snoop, Cypress Hill, Method Man, Red Man, which all were the current day major advocates. I thought, what a cool way to tell a story with the music and you know, take you along that ride from a musical cultural perspective, as well as looking at all the criminal justice stuff. So that's really was a fascinating, uh, and meeting you literally was great. When the film premiered a year ago on 420, uh, was a screening at, the, at that great theater in Oakland, and we met and then we hung out. I was just like elated because I followed your work, Steve, as one of the pioneers in the business, in the activism. And it was like, wow, you were really, I remember when after the film, you were like, wow, thank you. <laughs> so that made it. And also, I just want to say about your dad, of course, we touch on his amazing, um, legendary, like just bravery uh, out there. And, you know, and as, uh, as, as I talked to Damien, he had just, just talked, you know, about the amazing work you, your dad did. Over 40 years ago, that song, Legalize It, was just so heroic. So I remember that as a kid growing up in Bed-Stuy, like, wow, legalize it. <laughs> yeah, when I, I actually uh, watched the documentary, and, and um, kudos, you did a, a fabulous job with Thank the you. documentary. And I was, I had no idea that, I mean, I assumed, I'm like, they better talk about Peter Tosh, <laughs> you, you know? And so when I um, watched it and, um, you know, I, 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 I know Damian Marley only through um, Sedella, so I haven't actually yes. had a sit down opportunity, but then to see him um, and, and Janine really, they did a, a phenomenal job on really capturing like what it meant to, to, to be, um, um, that my father and, and his activism and how, how impactful yeah. that was in, in society and in the culture. Yes, he was a real, real, real hero for so many of us and was so ahead of his time and now proven right as we push through towards, you know, rectifying all this unfortunate hate and misinformation. And now we realize this is so beneficial as your dad articulated in the song. Yeah. <laughs> he broke down the, you know, <laughs> asthma and yeah, he broke down. He was, that was so excellent. So great. So ahead of his time. Well, that's a, a perfect segue into another strain that I want to weave into this tapestry here, right? Um, Last year, I had the remarkable good fortune to be able to spend about 200 days traveling to emerging cannabis economies in four different continents, from Europe to Africa to South America, and then back to North America, 
little stop in Jamaica along the way. And uh, one of the things that I learned in, in those travels was the, um, that, that, you know, all around the world, I would run into these very passionate, super well-educated young activists who were dedicating their lives to the cannabis freedom movement. And more often than not, they would tell me that they were introduced to cannabis. They were introduced to cannabis culture and cannabis thinking and the true facts of cannabis through reggae music. So Niambe, when you were growing up and even later on in life, um, you know, first, how did your father feel about this global role? And then, you know, how did it, how did the awareness of it sort of manifest in your life? Um, you know, he, he, my father was very spiritual and uh, he really felt like it was his spiritual responsibility to, to liberate the plant. Um, there's the song Legalize It, but then there's also another song, um, Bush Doctor, where he talks about, um, and he's quoted saying like, it can build a failing economy. You know, no longer will you have to duck and hide. Um, it will stop police brutality, you know, and this is, and it's, and um, so he was very much aware of the impact that cannabis legalization will have, particularly for those that are oppressed. And um, there's interviews of him saying that everybody smokes cannabis, but it's only the poor that suffer from, um, you know, prohibition. And so he just, he, he knew that it, he would always say like, you know, this is, this is, this is something that is divine. It's, it's, it's a divine, it's in me, you know, it's, it's from creation. This, this work that I do is, is uh, you know, I've been here, um, you know, centuries before this moment. So growing up, you know, it was, it was something that was just always around me. And people ask, what people don't know, I'm, I'm his youngest child. And so I, when he passed away in 1987, I was actually only five years old. And so I, I didn't grow up with, you know, his teachings and, and having that father figure to kind of pass on those messages. But it was through his music and through people that, that knew him and will share stories about how he felt and, um, you know, and how he, he you know, there's, there's actually interviews that you can find on, on social media where uh, he was always a target for police brutality. There, they would, there's an interview where police came into his house and dragged him out, you know, took a slip out of his hand as he was rolling it in his home and literally beat him up, broke his ribs, and yet still, even having those experiences, he would get up the next day, he would probably write a song <laughs> about it and, and continue to fight um, because he knew that it was for a greater good and it was coming from a higher power. And I think that cannabis really entombs us all to that, like, there's that spiritual connectivity that you have, you know, um, and there's a, he would call it divine inspiration, because it, it allows you to, to let go of all of the negativity that you may be experiencing in life, and then be able to create, you know, whether that's just um, creative thoughts or creative art or music expression, but it would allow you to, um, to, to express yourself in a way that no other <laughs> experience or substance really can do. Um, and, and growing up, those are the things that I started to learn and, and dive into. And I think when cannabis became legal in, in Colorado in 2014, that's when I was like, okay, it's time for me to really learn about the plant. Uh, I just, 
you know, I knew about slips and blunts. I'm from Boston, the inner city. <laughs> you know that? People just roll slips and they smoke blunts. And then I was like, what is dabbing? And what is, you know, wax? And even learning about the various ways that people are consuming, um, you know, in present day. Uh, but it, 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 it started to, um, when you start to see like Harvard professors and, and uh, really validating the things that my father was saying in, you know, 1975 about the medicinal benefits. Um, and then you start to see people talking about the impact on the economy. You know, uh, he was very much aware of, you know, hemp and all of its uses. Uh, he actually, when he passed away, his, the book, The uh, Emperor Wears No Clothes, <laughs> was actually in his house and was found in his house. And so he, he actually, you know, was, was very much about um, learning all facets of the plant. Uh, and it wasn't about just getting high, but it was really about turning, um, you know, just changing the world. That, uh, for me personally, is, is a really moving fact that you just mentioned that I'd never heard before about the, about the Emperor Wears No Clothes. Right around that time, I had been working on publishing and distributing the, that book. And oh, wow. So it's, it's, uh, it's and, 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 and what was getting me through those battles very often was your father's songs. Um, so it's, 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 it's very interesting this way that the global cannabis culture has developed where there's been this bringing of cannabis and knowledge about cannabis, the effects of cannabis, backwards and forwards um, uh, from communities of color uh, into the white community and, and, and then even vice versa we've seen uh, with uh, things like the emperor wears no clothes landing in Jamaica. Um, Fred, maybe could you tell us a little bit about the role that, uh, that jazz and, and, and later hip hop played in this introduction of cannabis from, from communities of color to, to, to white people? Uh, we know that, you know, Harry Anslinger uh, claimed that one of his motivating reasons for prohibition was this spread. Uh, is, was that uh, Anslinger's paranoid fantasy, or is that a, a real thing that's happened? Yeah, unfortunately, you know, the story of Harry Anslinger, who was the first drug czar in America, sort of like a baby uh, J. Edgar Hoover, um, very racist, and saw that this music, this popular music, which was really not universally loved at that time, jazz music. A lot of people looked at it as the devil's music, probably can equate it to the worst, the most intense gangster rap. Um, this is how it was depicted um, heavily at that time. And all the primary artists were vilified and really tortured. And once again, um, Harry Anslinger saw that this popular music was bringing people together. Like here where I live in Harlem, as this music was developing in the 20s and 30s, like people wanted to come and hear this. That's why the era is known as the Jazz Age. When F. Scott Fitzgerald wrote The Great Caspi and coined that term, that's a reflection of the music, the rhythm, the excitement that was going on. And cannabis was a huge part of it. Um, and so Harry Anslinger targeted musicians specifically. The primary big, the main artists in the genre were focused on, were harassed continually. But then his racism, with, and this went all the way from the 20s, 30s, 
when he got cannabis criminalized in 1937, he had influence all the way into the 60s, actually, and also was responsible for the death of Billie Holiday by targeting her and knowing that she was a heroin addict. Everyone knew that. And when, you were, when a heroin addict is you know, apprehended, medical treatment was a part of what was supposed to happen. And when he had Billie Holiday arrested, she was handcuffed to her hospital bed. They gave her no treatment where she died. So this guy was the evil kind of person that really is responsible for a lot of what we're trying to unravel to this day. And he saw that the jazz musicians were deeply involved in using the cannabis plant for all the same reasons that Peter Tosh and all these pioneers laid out for us clearly in a more of a modern era. And, you know, once again, cutting edge revolutionary musicians all kind of learned from each other and dived into similar things and understood those benefits. And that traveled all the way into hip hop. It was just a, syner a synergistic connection with the vibe that the plant allows you to have and creators are able to create even more so when the cannabis is just eases all those tensions um, psychoactively and um, great music that we're thankful for, you know? Um, yeah, it's just an amazing history to learn. I mean, had I been given more episodes, I would have gotten into other artists, like other R&B artists, like even in the, um, D'Angelo, who had this amazing record, Brown Sugar, back in the 90s, that really was a cannabis song. And, you know, Rick James, <laughs> who, who, who made a record called Mary Jane, you know, that was a cannabis song. And so I had also planned to interview George Clinton, and the idea would have been to take him to the, the African-American Smithsonian Museum, where the mothership actually is, interview him there to get P-Funk studies, because George not only did cannabis, but he did psychedelics as well. So it's fascinating uh, uh, musical connection that is why we've got, a part of why we've had so much great music, because so many great artists um, indulged in the plant and as they rightfully should. And so, yeah, that's a little bit of that. So what a, you know, what a beautiful, pattern, another thread of this tapestry, the way that cannabis in different places at different times for different people has sparked the creative impulse. And the way that that spirit of cannabis, that spirit of freedom, that spirit of experimentation, playfulness, uh, improvisation, freedom that goes along with cannabis has manifested in, in these really critically important art forms. I mean, where would our world be today if we didn't have jazz music, if we didn't have reggae music, if we didn't have hip hop? Can you uh, imagine it? And, you know, I think that we've, we've talked through this enough now that I'm pretty comfortable saying that none of those musical genres would be what they are today, but for the influence of cannabis. Absolutely. Uh, so God, think about how much poorer our world would be <laughs> how much less rhythm and joy and dancing uh, and beauty we would have if, if, if we didn't have cannabis. And then the way that, that in turn, each one of those um, cultural manifestations of cannabis has 
grown hugely popular all around the world, all around the world. They're the most popular. We've just listed the most popular global musical forms that exist in the modern era. They all grew out of the base of cannabis, and then they all became a communication vector through which knowledge of cannabis was passed. So this thing that we're all a part of here is, is, is deeper and longer than most cannabis people around the world have realized because that history has been so hidden from us. Um, and to both of you, you know, I'm wondering, we've talked a lot about music now, but I think there's some other art forms, other cultural expressions that have been influenced by cannabis. Um, can you think of any of them? come to mind like I'm thinking about like graffiti maybe yeah well you know coming from growing up in the streets in New York City I mean I mean cannabis was just a part of the existence in New York uh, like my entire life growing up and because of the heavy stigma placed on it you had to be a lot more hush hush even though there was a lot more hush-hush because once again, there were crim criminal ramifications which still exist with a disproportionate focus on people of color, but it still flourished and it was just a thing that you just grew up. So one of the things that was interesting for me as a young kid, I went to school, a high school out in Co the Coney Island section of Brooklyn. And at the time back then in the seventies, as graffiti was developing, my school was surrounded by the subway yards where the trains would be parked. And so I had also kind of figured out where my dad's stash was. So high school was a very cool period for me because I was able to, um, I found my dad's stash, which I was able to tap into a little bit, um, increase my um, friend, uh, network in high school by, you know, getting under the bleachers and sharing with them and then um, liberating some spray paint from the shop classes and then going under the fence to, to, to do graffiti on the subways. And so it was all like a synonymous thing. Like, and then everything you did culturally, like you wanted to get nice first is one of the slangs we would use. Yo, we got to get nice. Let's chip in on a $5 bag. Whether that was going to the movies, that was a requisite as a kid growing up. So I have a close connection with all the all my creative pursuits, whether enjoying or making. Um, cannabis is always a uh, in essential ingredient, and that's for all most of the creatives that I know. Not not all, but most. Yeah. An yeah, incredible story. Even, um, you know, even with you know, I, I I carry on my father's legacy, which is you know always looking. We opened up a museum um, in 2016, and but a lot of the direction um, that I take. Uh, really comes from, you know, taking a moment to to consume and, and meditate and then you get that like moment, that aha moment, you know, that often comes with <laughs> when you're under um, the influence and you have this higher, you, fit, you know, this higher elevated mind state to kind of guide you and, and lead you in the right direction. And I think no matter, um, you know, even in teaching, you know, <laughs> I, was, I taught in Boston Public Schools for 10 years and you say, you know, I'm, I think I'm going to do this lesson like this. And there's so many um, uh, areas where creativity, um, even though it may not be like teaching is not necessarily an art form, but it is, you know, an art, <laughs> you know, to really be able to connect with children. And so I would, you know, when I would create lesson plans and say, I want to, you know, switch it up and, and find something that provide inspiration to, to maybe do something that's unconventional within the 
classroom. Um, I, there's a, I think there's a lot of avenues that we can, can think of that really, um, that have creativity kind of at the foundation of, of it and, and allow it to be, you to be that much more impactful in the work that you do. So uh, running a nonprofit as well, you know, it, it takes that, uh, you know, that creative inspiration at, at the foundation and then you kind of take it from there. I just wanted to say, um, Mayambe, um, I don't, I'm sure you know this guy, Wayne Jobson. Yes. Yeah, Wayne's an old friend of mine. He's a legendary Jamaican mm-hmm. radio DJ, just super scholar. But he was involved, I believe, in the documentary about your dad. What was the name? Was it Red X? Red X. Yes, it was Red X. Uh, that was done in the, in the 1990s. Yeah. Um, and so he, it, he did a great job. The documentary. Yeah. It definitely is time for. I, we're working on a, a new documentary to kind of bring awareness. But it was a. He's a. He's a good friend of mine, and um, and knew my dad well. And yes, and, uh, we connect every so often. And so that was based on your on these tape recordings that your dad left. If I'm not correct, mistaken. yeah. He um before he passed um. Uh, a friend of his gave him a, a tape player uh, that he could record into. Um, he intended to um, just have it, possibly to write a, a book. Right. And he um, just would record whatever, um, whenever he felt inspiration and re- record all of these um, recordings. And so then they took those recordings and, and created a documentary. Yeah, I need to see that again. I just wanted to say what the, the interesting um, connection here because Louis Armstrong did the exact same thing. Louis, in fact, in my film, Grass is Greener, we uh, we interviewed, um, uh, God, what's his name? I'm having a brain freeze moment. Um, One of the cannabis experts in my film, whose name will come to me in a minute, um, who wrote the first book on Reefer Madness, is an early editor of High Times. We were interviewing in Louis Armstrong's former home, and the reel-to-reel tape recorder behind him in that scene was the reel-to-reel. Louis would pretty much, all his thoughts, he'd turn that tape recorder on and talk. There's literally hundreds of hours, and and, um, he quite a bit of him talking about cannabis and why he's being persecuted because he was such a prominent musician and he would be talking to his manager on the tape like you got to get me a permit because if people can have a license to have a gun you mean I can't have a license to smoke this plant this was way back 40s and 50s and so that is a great a more effortless way to put your thoughts down to record them so that's interesting that two of our premier musical cannabis, like just giants were thinking in the same way. Right, right, wow. Wow, I didn't know that. And that they were such deep thinkers and scholars, right? That they were, that they were, I believe, divinely inspired uh, people who were on spiritual missions. And I think that that the the breadth of their view uh, um, reflects that. You know, this has just been an, an amazing almost hour. We're, we're, we're getting down to the end of our time together. Um, you know, I think that, that some of the things that we've learned is that uh, in many, many, many places, cannabis uh, seemingly spontaneously has been a catalyst for artistic uh, and creative expression. 
that um, that contrary to the the popularly received uh, idea that Europeans uh, uh, were the ones who brought cannabis to North America in the form of industrial hemp, it is probably actually more true that cannabis, the type of cannabis that we smoke and, and consume, uh, really came to us mostly through the hands of Africans uh, and their descendants. Mm -hmm. I think that we've learned that, that out of this crucible of oppression, out of this crucible of bondage, right, the, and cannabis, that some of the most critical art forms that have moved the world, that continue to move the world today, emerge out of this, out of this cauldron. Absolutely. Uh, jazz, um, uh, reggae, uh, yes. hip hop. And, 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 and if we think about what has happened uh, just in, in, in this period of time with cannabis and artistic expression and creativity, imagine what we're gonna be able to all do together over the course of the next 10 or 20 or 30 years. We're just getting started. That's right. So uh, I do want to end uh, just briefly by offering, Fred, I'd like you to give us an opportunity, uh, give you an opportunity, just, you know, any, any new projects we should know about, man? Well, um, a lot of interesting things working on. So one thing is, um, I just want to say, I'm developing a cannabis brand inspired by the story of Bernard Noble, which I feature in my film. And um, it's a real, please watch the film if you haven't seen it. This man's story is representative of too many people put in prison. He was given 14 years for two joints of cannabis. And so we're developing a brand called Be Noble um, to help him and also to raise the awareness, connect him with what the work you're doing, Steve, with the Last Prisoner Project, the fact that there's still thousands and thousands of people in prisons across America for nonviolent cannabis offenses. I also just want to say, the, I just want to mention my dear friend, Ron Samuel, who was a brother that's been deeply involved in cannabis his entire life. And it was a conversation with him um, telling me he was going to start a company called 40 Acres and a Greenhouse in reference to the 40 acres that Black folks were promised after you know, reconstruction, which never really happened. And that conversation on the phone with him one night, three years ago, sparked the whole idea for the movie Grass is Greener. So he's been a big inspiration. He's involved with the company that's now producing cannabis, building a 100,000 square foot greenhouse in Zimbabwe to produce, to distribute medically throughout Europe. And he, and it's just amazing to the connections that I've made the things that I've learned. And so that's really what I've been working on as well as more film and TV projects and some incredible paintings. So that's really what I do. But Be Noble is a brand that's coming soon. All right. And uh, thanks so much. I encourage everybody to stay in touch with, with Fred if you love cannabis. Uh, he'll keep on laying interesting and new stuff on you, I'm sure, for years to come. Niambe, as director of the Peter Tosh Foundation, uh, maybe you could fill us in a, a bit on your work there, uh, what's going on uh, with the brand. And then I, I'd just like to close out, uh, if you could uh, tell us uh, how the Tosh family has been directly uh, impacted by, by this really Holocaust against cannabis. Mm -hmm. um, well, the Peter Tosh Foundation was, was founded in uh, 2017. Um, actually shortly after 
my brother's incident, and I'll get into to information about that. And the purpose was really to, to um, continue with my father's mission. You know, he was a, a Pan-Africanist. He also um, pushed for equal rights and justice. Also, the, the, the wanted to impart the, the knowledge of cannabis and its benefits across the globe. And so we have five initiatives from the foundation. One is the Peter Tosh Museum and, and having um, proceeds to continue on um, having this place in Jamaica, in Kingston, Jamaica, that people can visit and learn about his legacy and his work. As well as um, we do have a, a legalized initiative, which is really geared at um, partnering with different organizations to have inclusivity within the cannabis industry, also to have uh, education platform for cannabis as well. We have the Justice for Jawara initiative, which was uh, founded on two part for criminal justice reform. And then also there is proceeds. There's also a, a campaign geared about just raising funds for my brother's um, health and well-being as well. Um, and then we have a, um, a global uh, community initiative where we do more of um, different partnerships with small organizations across the globe that can help uplift communities particularly um, as a, my father being a Pan-African is looking for, um, you know, people of the diaspora of, of Africa and, and also in Africa itself. Um, and so that's really the work that we, we focus on um, with the foundation. We, and then, oh yeah, there is one more initiative called the Can't Blame the Youth Initiative, which it's very important that we, we bridge the connection of my father's legacy and his teachings, all of those that I just mentioned. Um, and, cat and, and passing that on to the next generation. So we, we, we do different initiatives where I, I personally go into schools and um, talk about my father's message, his impact, his music, and kind of help to really instill those values within young people as well. But to, for those that, that don't know about um, my brother, his name is Jawara McIntosh. Um, musically, he's known as Tosh One. Uh, when he was um, 37, in 2013, actually, wow. So um, he was a little bit younger. So in 2013, he was arrested for cannabis possession in New Jersey. Um, he was held in um, Bergen County Jail for six months without a hearing. And after uh, the hearing, he was then um, proposed to have a 20-year sentence. This is a man who is a Rastafarian father for uh, no prior offenses, um, nonviolent, um, very loving father and um, activist within, within the community as well. And so um, he was released on bail a few months later. And then for about, um, from 2013 to 2016, he had gone back and forth from Boston to New Jersey for pretrial motions. First them saying, okay, well, 20 years is the best we can offer. And then he, you know, he was torn between really standing up for what he believes in as a, as a freedom fighter and as an activist for the plant, but then also not wanting to be made an example of. Um, and, and anybody that knows uh, New Jersey's legacy when it comes to um, cannabis prohibition, um, they're very, very much antiquated. So although um, medical was, was legal, in the state, they were still very much um, arresting people for minor cannabis offenses. And my brother, uh, he did have um, what can be conceived for some as 
a lot of cannabis. It was several pounds. It wasn't until 2016 where he finally said, you know what, I'm going to take a plea. And it, it got down to a plea offer, offer of five years. And once he, um, and he turned himself in in January of 2017, he was incarcerated at Bergen County Jail in New Jersey for about a month and a half uh, before being attacked, um, brutally attacked by another inmate suffering a traumatic brain injury. Since then, he has been bedbound, unable to walk, talk, communicate, do anything with intent. Uh, needs 24-hour care. Um, I actually am his primary caretaker along with my mom, but he lives here with me and um, we have now turned to the plant also to help with his healing process. But it, it's, the injuries are devastating and, and are require um, a lot a lot of care. And so we have launched from this the Justice for Juara initiative, um, looking at really sharing his, his story in, um, in hopes to really uh, have an impact on legislation that uh, no one should be arrested or incarcerated over the plant. And it's time to really push for, for legalization. And so um, those that uh, want to um, to donate to the to initiative, they can go to Peter Tosh, the Peter Tosh Foundation.org and um, or justicefajuara.org. Um, it's J-A-W-A-R-A. -A and uh, I donate either um, to the cause of educating people around um, the impacts of prohibition or directly to his, his medical um, care. So that is the work that I, that I do. Thanks for sharing that, Bay. And in my view, this is one of the most outrageous outrages that I've heard of in the world of cannabis. And I've been around for 50 years, so I've seen a lot of them. But the idea that, that one of our heroes, one of our prophets, one of our great teachers, son, should be subjected to what he has been subjected to, just being arrested in the first place at a time when there were other people who were being allowed to sell cannabis, and then being put into a facility where this kind of horror uh, can happen. Um, so if, if, in my opinion, the global cannabis community has a sacred obligation to make sure that all of these initiatives of the Tosh family are well-funded, that all of us need to make sure that when we go to Kingston, we make a pilgrimage to the Peter Tosh Museum, that we all collectively make sure that there will be justice for Jawara. And if you live in one of the places around the world where thankfully, finally, long, long overdue, we're seeing the statues, the honoring of these horrible racist slave traders, Confederate generals finally tumbling down, let's make sure that those statues are replaced by people, our heroes, our prophets, like yes. Peter Tosh. Yes, Thank you. yes, 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 yes. <laughs> this has been great, Steve. And I'm so sorry to hear about that. And I'm, wow, unbelievable horror. And I will clearly do what I can do as well. Thank you. Thank you. All right, friends, thank you so much for tuning into Radio Free Cannabis. Niambe, Fred, thank you for bringing your wisdom and your soul and your thoughts to this show, to our audience. And 
stay tuned every That's Sunday. Right. Thanks for this great work that you do, Steve. We really appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Your work is amazing. And uh, of course, this is not going to be the last time we connect. So I'm looking forward to, you know, an ongoing relationship and uh, a pleasure to meet you as well, Freddie. Yes, likewise, <laughs> absolutely. This has been, this has been <laughs> special. Great way to spend my afternoon. Exactly. Yes, positive energy is what we need. Because oh, yeah. as I turn on the news, it's going to be more nightmarish madness. But I love a good fight and I'm ready, goddammit. Yeah, Bring it. yeah. Taking it right to the on. street. And tomorrow is Juneteenth, and I'll be out there in Harlem. Big demonstrations going on. I know this will be a little after, but that's how we doing it, baby. Awesome. Can't, can't stop, won't stop. Thanks, Steve.